Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. British Prime Minister Theresa May decided to delay the parliamentary vote on her Brexit deal with the EU. Originally scheduled for tomorrow, it was a vote she would have lost. Labor leader Jeremy Corbyn says May has lost control of events, and he urged her to stand down. Let's talk about what's happening with Maxime Larive. He's a senior research associate at the EU Center of Excellence at the University of Miami. Thanks a lot for joining us again, Maxime. Hello. Uh, What do you think is next here for the Brexit deal? Obviously, it can't pass Parliament as is. Theresa May is saying, I'm going back to get a statement of clarification from the EU. But um, the the odds are it's not going to change. We're just in some kind of holding pattern until until, um, something happens. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, well, the, the United Kingdom is truly in a deep political crisis. I think this is undeniable. Um, well, Theresa May now uh, is going to be trying to survive, uh, but in, uh, on uh, December 13 and 14, uh, there will be an EU summit. And the EU summit was actually, you know, conveniently posted two days after the, the vote that was supposed to take place tomorrow. And so she is uh, expected to go uh, talk to her 27 um, partners at the European level and, and get some more guarantees. But coming from the European Union, uh, everybody has been pretty clear that EU will not be uh, seeking for a renegotiation whatsoever. So uh, do you think a new election is next? Does Jeremy Corbyn um, stand up and finally you know, make it happen? Yeah, I think several elements, uh, you know, uh, play, right? So today, uh, the European Court of Justice just announced that a revocation of the Article 50 uh, could be made uh, by the state uh, that had uh, used it. Uh, the Article 50, as you may recall, is uh, the article allowing a member state of the European Union to seek for um, the departure from the European Union and triggers a two-year period of negotiation. So now the ECJ is telling uh, pretty much the United Kingdom, well, if you want to repeal the Article 50 and end the negotiation, that is possible. So that's one element. The second option could be, uh, she had mentioned um, earlier on, potentially to postpone a a vote at the House uh, on uh, the referendum. So that could take place uh, maybe next year, early next year. But uh, the problem is all about the timing. May 29 is the deadline, uh, unless she uh, seeks uh, in the next two days for an extension on the negotiation process right. for uh, for the referendum. And March 29th is the deadline there. So uh, that's coming up really soon. Uh, a lot of decisions are going to be made. Something's going to happen. Uh, there was a fun quote um, from one of the Democratic uh, Unionist Party members, this is a battle of who blinks first and we've cut off our eyelids. That seems to me almost what's uh, going down with the British. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, you know, I think I think there is uh, the political crisis, but there is, you know, I think beyond politics, um, Theresa May and, you know, the Labour and the Tories, uh, they are really as well confronting a democratic reality, right? Um, the referendum uh, was initiated and then we had an outcome, even though, you know, later on we learned about some uh, campaign financing problems, some disinformation, and then some Brexit are really pushing for uh, actual lies uh, about, you know, what it will entail. 
But nevertheless, the British uh, electorate uh, decided on leaving the United, uh, the European Union. So I think the British government and elected officials need to take into consideration um, the will of the people. A second referendum maybe could bring a different options and a different uh, result. But uh, what would happen in the future uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the integrity of the nation? I think that's something that's quite important and something that we're all looking in, uh, into. I'm talking with Maxime Larive. He's a senior research associate at the EU Center for Excellence at the University of Miami. After the break, we're going to be talking about Hong Kong. Uh, it's four years since the unsuccessful Umbrella Revolution, and we will take stock there. Uh, I wanted to switch over and move on to France, and it's been another weekend of Yellow Jacket protesting. President Macron is meeting with um, leaders, political leaders, business leaders, union leaders. He's going to address the nation this week, and this is uh, really an interesting crisis that's developed in France. Um, Does President Macron have what it takes to confront this new opposition to him? Yeah, uh, you're right. Uh, President Macron is really facing the most important crisis of his um, of his mandate. Um, many ex- many experts argue that if he uh, were to fail on that challenge, then that will be the end of his of his uh, five year mandate. In some ways, he will not be able to transform the the country the way he wanted to. Um, that uh, specific crisis around the yellow jacket, um, you know, really started after the, the implementation that was supposed to kick in next year of a tax on diesel. And this really triggered a social crisis and expressed a, social, a deep social crisis in France about purchasing power. Uh, and this is something that really began decades ago. It really started back in the 90s. This is not something that just emerged in the last year. Uh, and, and so the yellow jacket really brought up uh, on the front page uh, you know, um, of the political agenda and so forth about the reality of social inequalities in a highly taxed country, a developed country for that matter, where now we have a real split between the middle class, the lower class, and, and, uh, and the wealthier individuals. And that is what he's confronting with. Well, what kind of actions can he take? He can't really go back on the things he's already done and uh, reinstate the wealth tax or something? Can, what are the kind of things that he could do? Yeah, so he's expecting to uh, address the nation, I believe, in, in 45 minutes. Uh, and after spending four, uh, four hours this morning talking with uh, social actors and elected officials, uh, it appears that um, tonight it will be about really re- bringing the nation together, addressing mostly short-term uh, um, short-term um, policies and, and, and actions. This could be, uh, you know, readdressing uh, some assistance for retirees because retirees have been touched by uh, lesser uh, assistance program. It could be done uh, through assistance, you know, some sort of a, a boost on transportation. Because uh, the yellow jacket, even though, you know, the the American media have uh, really spent quite some time about the violence in Bordeaux, Paris and others, the yellow jacket really takes place in what we call the empty diagonal that goes from the northeast to the southwest. Uh, we're talking of deep rural France that 
does not have access to excellent public transportation, and that I've seen over the time, you know, the demise and the decline of the of, of all social programs. And these people are highly dependent on their cars uh, to go to work, to go to a hospital, to go to school. So this is really about regiving in some ways um, trust and confidence and, and financial assistance to these individuals in order to survive. Is We were just talking about the British uh, political crisis. Is the crisis in France almost... Um, Similar, the we had Macron. He ran from the center. He won. He created a new political center in France. If he gets um, swept away, is France left with an acute left-right choice? Is does do things get worse? Yeah, that, that, that is the one of the debate happening, right? Uh, obviously, the establishment uh, of the, the government in Paris is, well, this is not really a political crisis, even though we've heard about, you know, a call for the departure of the president and so on. Uh, and there is a call as well to increase maybe democratic representation with a more proportional vote uh, in there. Uh, I think at that time, uh, you know, the, the right and left are still highly divided. Uh, the, the mainstream right is shifting towards the extreme right. Uh, the left, the Socialist Party, is uh, really struggling with uh, uh, finding an agenda, finding a proper leader. And then the, the, the other left, led by uh, Mélenchon, which is an extreme uh, left, uh, I don't think is a real uh, you know, viable option as well that is highly divided. So I think, I think on that point, uh, the government uh, appears relatively stable. Uh, but uh, let's see what happens, you know, uh, and if they can actually manage the crisis and, and kind of uh, cool down the, the, the spirit. Well, we'll see what uh, President Macron has to say in his address coming up in within the hour. Maxime Larive is a senior research associate at the EU Center for Excellence at the University of Miami. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the crises in France and Britain. My pleasure. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the four-year anniversary of the Hong Kong democracy movement and talk about where it's at today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's been four years since the umbrella movement in Hong Kong. For 79 days, protesters pushed for total democracy. They failed, and the authorities have pursued cases against 100 protesters. Last month, the trial began for some of the leaders of the protests. The Umbrella Nine, as they're known, includes university professors and a priest. With me is Justin C. He's visiting assistant professor of Asian American Studies at Northwestern University. He edited the book Theological Reflections on the Hong Kong Umbrella Movement. Nice to talk with you, Justin. Nice to talk with you, Jerome. It's interesting to think about the Hong Kong democracy movement four years on. Four years ago, it seemed like 
uh, a democracy movement that was an outgrowth of, of Occupy and kind of a little bit of an amorphous thing with its demands. Um, but th four years later, it looks like everything else in the world. It looks like France and Hungary and Wisconsin and all, all the other uh, issues with democracy everywhere else. I was just saying to a friend yesterday that that that, that similarity is remarkable because of a uh, theoretical term uh, called the post-political. The post-political is an idea that's being uh, talked about by scholars uh, to denote the way that governments feel like they can just push policies onto people, whether those policies are on the left or on the right. And of course, the reaction to that is antagonism from people because they because people don't want to be taken as fools. And so uh, with that sort of push and pull, uh, there seems to be more protests al alongside more authoritarian uh, encouragement. The uh, leadership looks different too. President Xi in China four years ago looked like someone who um, had some degree of flexibility at the time, but now he does not look like a flexible character at all. And the demands and the things that are coming down on Hong Kong do not look flexible. They don't look flexible. Um, I think one of the things that's coming back into the picture is a uh, is a law that's on the books called Article Twenty Three. So Article Twenty Three, uh, Article Twenty Three refers to the article in the Mini Constitution Basic Law, and the idea is that the government should pass a national security bill. Now, the government tried to do that in two thousand three, failed badly. Um, uh, about half a million Hong Kong people hit the streets in protest of that. And so the bill was shelved. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that, or, and to many other observers, that uh, Xi and his, uh, and his people in the Hong Kong government now, uh, especially the newly, quote unquote, elected uh, chief executive, Carrie Lam, uh, are trying to bring that back, to bring back uh, a national security bill to guard against sedition, however broadly defined. So what exactly is against the law right now in Hong Kong? I noticed that the pro-democracy independence party uh, was banned officially in September. There's a lot of things that are not legal. The one thing that the government seems the most nervous about is this word self-determination because it leads to something called independence. Now, the the language for that comes from the official position that uh, Hong Kong and the People's Republic of China enjoy, and that's called one country, two systems. So one country, two systems is, th is this idea that there is one country, but there are two autonomous political, economic, and judicial systems. Right. And so uh, the, the, this claim of autonomy is quite, is quite a matter of debate because the question is how much autonomy can Hong Kong enjoy with the one country, China? And the way that it's being framed right now in terms of legality is that all talk of autonomy, self-determination, independence makes the government nervous, which, which speaks to a kind of erosion of one country, two systems. So what exactly is illegal? No, nobody is really sure, but it, these words like autonomy, self-determination, self independence really make some people in the government nervous. I'm talking with Justin C. from Northwestern about the struggles of the democracy movement in Hong Kong. Today is International Human Rights Day, and coming up after the break, we will hear from Human Rights Watch about a film that they're showing to mark the occasion. Um, 
Let's talk about some of the people who are in the democracy movement. There are several that are going to go on trial and their their trial started uh, last month and um, they're academics, they're a priest and they they still seem to hold out hope that they can – in their trials, talk about democracy and talk about the direction the country is going and turn things around. I've been reading their quotes and they're quite inspiring. They are quite inspiring and they're, they're, they're broadly inspired by Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Miguel de Umamono and a, a lot of sort of humanist and democracy leaders from uh, throughout like the history of nonviolence. Um, they are uh, – the Umbrella Nine as they're known – are mostly associated with a group that preceded the Umbrella Movement called Occupy Central with Love and Peace. Oftentimes when we talk about Occupy Central and the Umbrella Movement, these, things, these two things get mixed up. And so the way that the prosecution is presenting it is that the Umbrella Nine incited the Umbrella Movement as a public nuisance. The, how things really went down was a little bit more complicated. Basically, what happened was that students felt that the people associated with Occupy Central were moving way too slowly. And so what they did was they went and occupied some of the central political, economic, and commercial sites in Hong Kong, and the Umbrella Nine sort of supported them. Whether the students wanted that support was a matter of debate among the students. And so that's actually the case that the Umbrella Nine are bringing against the government to defend themselves, that they, they weren't inciting anything if the students were debating whether they wanted to be in, supported by them in the first place. One of the uh, things that's been happening that I read about is um, some of the security forces in Hong Kong going to China and getting some training in uh, the area where the Uyghurs are being cracked down upon. And this seems to be resonating in an interesting way in Hong Kong because uh, the idea of re-education camps and, and you know, if they've got a million Uyghurs in re-education camps, what are they going to do to us in Hong Kong? I imagine some of the people in, involved in the democracy movement are thinking hard about this. I think they're thinking hard about that and I think they're thinking hard about it in terms of Article 23 because, because if uh, the government is going to crack down on – uh, sedition or self-determination or, 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 uh, or promote measures for security, if they're learning from Xinjiang, are, are education camps on the table? Um, the other question uh, in one of the articles that I read about this was that an anonymous government official said that, uh, oh, oh, the re-education camps are not on the table. But I thought that the government never really admitted that there were re-education camps in the first place. And so is this an admission that there are actually re-education camps? So these are sort of the questions that are being raised on the table. It all sounds pretty ominous. There's like not a good – I don't know what the good move here is for for the democracy movement. I don't know what it is either and I won't presume to speak for the people of Hong Kong. Uh, but one of the interesting things, as you noted, is that the case for democracy is now being presented in the Umbrella Nine, uh, in the Umbrella Nine trial, right? To to basically say that to 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 loosen up the association among these concepts: sedition, self determination, democracy, and independence. To present a more complex picture of the movement, and I think uh, with with that, I, uh, it's easier to sort of unravel this larger government fantasy that it needs to crack down on people who are threatening its existence. 
Well, it'll be very interesting to see what happens with the Umbrella Nine in Hong Kong. It's been four years since the Umbrella Movement in Hong Kong. Thanks for joining us, Justin C., Visiting Assistant Professor of Asian American Studies at Northwestern. He edited the book, Theological Reflections on the Hong Kong Umbrella Movement. Nice talking with you, Justin. Very nice talking to you. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking with Human Rights Watch. It's International Human Rights Day, and they're showing a film about the occasion. We'll discuss it after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's International Human Rights Day, the day the U.N. General Assembly adopted the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. Human Rights Watch is going to mark the occasion tonight with the showing of the documentary Strike a Rock at the Siskel Film Center. Strike a Rock features some of the common challenges of our time, corporate greed, inequality, excessive force, impunity, Komala Ramachandra is a senior researcher for business and human rights at Human Rights Watch, and she is going to be there tonight at the Siskel Center and uh, be a part of the discussion for Human Rights uh, Day. Nice to meet you. Happy Happy Human Rights Day. Thanks. Happy Human Rights Day to you, too. Um, you know, these common themes, This, this I didn't even say what country this film is set in. It isn't set in South Africa, but corporate inequality, excessive force, impunity, all these things are happening all over the place. It seems like the Universal Declaration on Human Rights isn't winning these days, and something else is. Yeah, I mean, these are themes that we see in almost every country around the world, and it's something that we work hard to document and expose in, in various ways. We actually released a new report today looking at uh, deregulation in, in the U.S. that supports the coal industry uh, and harms communities um, affected by mountaintop removal mining in, in Appalachia. Uh, and, and that had a lot of corporate influence involved in that as well. So, you know, these are these are themes that we, we see in, in, in many different ways. Uh, the film actually focuses on uh, South Africa and the mining industry there. And it's funny because the women in the film who band together to uh, fight the many injustices that they're facing, um, they look at the business and the government as one. It comes right out of one of the women's mouths at, at, at the, during the film. Um, they see them as the same thing, much like maybe the coal industry and the U.S. government right now. It's, it's, uh, it's happening all over the place. Indeed, it is. Uh, and, you know, there are some interesting points in the film as well when you see that the, the lawnman spokesperson, the person from the company, Cyril Ramaphosa, is actually now the head of South Africa. He's the president. He's the president of South Africa. So, you know, there are a lot of connections. And we, we work to make sure that those interests don't uh, conflict with each other and that when countries, when governments are going to regulate industry to make sure that they are acting responsibly, uh, that they are doing so with the best with the the best interest of people at heart. At the core of the film is an incident that happened in 2012, where the South African police shot and killed uh, protesters who were protesting for better conditions at the mining interest uh, lawnman, and they killed 37 people in cold blood and. 
in the film, they have people watching Cyril Ramaphosa, the man who's now the president of South Africa, and screaming, blood on your hands, blood on your hands. It's hard to believe that really nothing was done for these people who were in these conditions, but that, that is at the core of the film. Yeah, the the film goes uh, starts in 2012 when the shooting occurs and goes all the way through 2017 and documents the many, many stages that these women uh, take, the, the steps that they take in, uh, to knock on every door, to, to pursue every avenue for justice for their for themselves and for their community. And, you know, it it's it's inspiring to see how dedicated these women are and the the lengths that they go to. One of them actually gets elected to parliament in South Africa in an attempt to bring these issues to the national to national attention. So it's pretty it's amazing to see what they um, are able to do just to women from this community. Uh, the human struggle of it is um so heartbreaking in a way that the the women do not end up really getting anything uh, in the end. They they're, they just they're struggling. They're going to persevere. But there's all these widows and children and uh, ten thousand people living in these shacks that uh, all work at this mine, and they're in they're just in miserable conditions. And it's it's going to stay that way. It's true. But, you know, they also are an inspirational force. I mean, we're here talking about them today. We're, we're, we're realizing that these themes are worldwide, they're global, that they're, that our struggles are all interconnected um, for justice and for accountability. And, you know, those the protests in South Africa uh, against mining companies continue. There's a lot of protests that are still happening. And I, I have no doubt that these two women were an, an inspirational force to those folks who continue to raise their voice and are brave in the face of uh, potential violence. And Primrose, the woman who goes and runs for parliament and wins, she joins a party that is not the ANC. She joins a party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, and they're uh, more radical. They want the you know, kind of things that she wants. They want uh, more uh, economic justice. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Uh, and and I and I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know. Have a great information about the EFF's platform, but I think you know what we at Human Rights Watch are always supporting are uh, human rights, the protection of human rights, the defense of uh, people to have. Uh, the things that allow for basic dignity in their lives, making sure that, you know, their children are taken care of, basic housing, food, uh, and that people aren't, you know, criminalized for for raising their voices or for simply for being poor. The World Bank and the International Finance Corporation played a role in in the, the situation in South Africa. Um, could you explain that a little and what, what role these institutions are playing today out there? Sure. The World Bank Group is um, is an international bank that's uh, composed of countries from across the world, and their primary mandate is to de- uh, support development. And they have a sub-institution called the International Finance Corporation, which primarily lends to private institutions. And in this film, they provided money uh, to buy a stake in Lawnman, the platinum company, with the intent of promoting community development in the communities that were affected by the mining. Um, and, you know, in many cases, uh, that development happens. But in this case, the community members were alleging that the the development that the company had promised in the form of housing and, and improved living conditions had not materialized. What is this a failure of international institutions as much as it is um, governments? 
Absolutely. I mean, the the IFC is actually composed of government, so it's it's both of them together. They are uh, making a commitment jointly to improve the lives of people. And, and the IFC, the World Bank, they're funded by our governments, so they are all interlinked. And um, they they it is it is um, something that communities from around the world are calling for a greater accountability of these international institutions to deliver on their promises. Um, The idea that you're going to raise a lot of people out of poverty with uh, platinum mining, uh, it seems like that's not really the kind of development that people want in their country. They they want something, um, something different. That seems to be our struggle these days. Uh, yeah, and I, I think you know institutions like the World Bank and the IFC need to to make sure that they're listening to communities that are uh, that are at the grassroots that are in need of development support to see what kind of development they are looking for and and take their cues from people who they are supposed to be serving directly. Uh, Komala wrote Ramachandra is a senior researcher for business and human rights at Human Rights Watch, and they'll be screening Strike a Rock, followed by a panel discussion tonight at uh, 6.30 at the Gene Siskel Film Center on State Street. Um, you're going to have a conversation. You're having a kind of a reception beforehand and then a conversation, too. Yes, that's right. Um, at 6.30, there'll be a reception catered by Fig and Honey, uh, run by two Syrian refugee sisters. So we hope people can join us then, and the film will start at 7.30. All right. I strongly advise people do it and do something positive for Human Rights Watch, uh, for Human Rights Day. Uh, Thanks a lot for joining us. Komala Ramachandra from Human Rights Watch. Thank you so much. Worldview, we are going to talk a little about George H.W. Bush again and discuss and recall something that people didn't talk a lot about last week, his role in the war on drugs. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia-Blanco for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. WBEZ.